This is The Guardian. Hallo, hier ist wieder Clark. Clark? Ist das nicht diese kostenlose App, mit der ich meine Versicherungen ganz einfach manage? Genau. Nach der Anmeldung kannst du deine bestehenden Verträge in die App hochladen und sie mit dem Bedarfscheck bewerten lassen. Wo es Optimierungsmöglichkeiten gibt, macht dir Clark alternative Vorschläge. Übrigens 100% unabhängig von einzelnen Versicherungsanbietern. Und bei Fragen stehen dir die Clark-Versicherungsexperten zur Verfügung. Ganz ohne Wartezeit. Wenn du dich jetzt mit dem Gutscheincode PODCAST30 alles großgeschrieben registrierst und deine Versicherungen in Clark hochlädst, erhältst du einen Amazon-Gutschein von bis zu 30 Euro. A quick warning for this episode that we do hear threats of violence, which include some offensive language. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. We've talked recently on the podcast about that video that was posted by Republican Congressman Paul Gosal, which depicted in anime style the killing of the Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It was horribly violent and there was huge pressure on Paul Gosar to apologise, which he eventually did, and also to take the video down. But in the debate, plenty of his colleagues rallied to his side, defending what they said was his right to free speech. One of those defenders was a fellow Republican member of Congress, a new member from Colorado, Lauren Bobert, who said this in the debate on the House floor. The Jihad Squad member from Minnesota has paid her husband, and not her brother husband, the other one, over a million dollars in campaign funds. This member is allowed on the Foreign Affairs Committee while praising terrorists. Bobert referring there to Ilhan Omar, Democratic Congresswoman from Minnesota. And a recent report by Fox News that Omar had allegedly paid the political consultancy firm owned by her husband nearly $3 million during the 2020 election cycle. Omar ended the contract with the firm last year. But putting aside those accusations, it was the Islamophobic comments that Bobart got most criticism for. In the last week, a couple of videos have emerged showing Bobart boasting about what she called a jihad squad moment that she had when she bumped into or encountered Ilan Omar herself in a lift. Boba issued an apology under some pressure, apologising to anybody in the Muslim community that she might have offended. But she would not say sorry to the woman she had spoken about directly, Ilhan Omar. Well, all of that has got people talking about Islamophobia in the Republican Party and in America itself. So to discuss all this, I'm joined this week by Abdul El Sayed, who is an epidemiologist, a political commentator, an author and a former candidate for the governorship of Michigan. And I started off by asking him to tell us a bit more about the players in this drama, starting with Lauren Bobert. Lauren Boebert is a reactionary right-wing uh, conservative congresswoman out of Colorado, and uh, she has a history of of being a Trump acolyte, complete with the the kinds of of hateful comments that we're hearing right now. Um, most recently, yeah, you know, she she wore a uh, a red 
dress to go meet with uh, former President Trump that said, let's go Brandon on the back, which has become sort of a euphemism uh, for a mean thing to say about uh, Joe Biden. So you say this is a coded way of sending a message about Joe Biden. Just explain that to us. Yeah, there was a NASCAR event. So for folks who uh, don't watch stock car racing in the United States, it's um, uh, a relatively large uh, has a relatively large following. And um, there was an individual who won a race. His name was Brandon. And the folks in the stands, usually commands several hundreds of thousands of people who come to watch these races, were chanting, F Joe Biden. And the, the commentator thought that they were chanting, let's go, Brandon. And uh, that being because the, the, the stock car driver who'd won the race, his name is Brandon. And so Let's Go Brandon became a bit of a euphemism and has become uh, sort of this coded language for F. Joe Biden. It's a fascinating commentary on the culture wars. NASCAR, always part of the culture wars in a way in American politics. It's made a, had a walk on part in American politics before. But so often these messages go in this kind of coded way, as you've described. Anyway, that's Lauren Boebert. We've talked about her a bit on the podcast before. In a way, she's a sort of bit of a counterpart to Marjorie Taylor Greene, that, that sort of, uh, those, those kinds of politics. So she's in one corner, if you like, in the red corner. Now the other player in this drama is Ilhan Omar. Who is she? Ilhan Omar is a progressive congresswoman uh, who was first elected in, in 2018, quote-unquote member of the squad, um, one of four progressive uh, congresswomen of color who had been elected uh, in that year in, in 2018, and she serves the district in, in Minnesota. And she's uh, one of the first Muslim women to be elected to Congress. She also is the only congresswoman uh, to wear a hijab, and um, she's also a Somali immigrant uh, who came to this country as a refugee. So these two could not really be more polar opposite to each other. They're both on, in some ways, the kind of radical edges of their own parties. And so they were. these are two people who are never going to get on, but they have directly clashed. Tell us exactly what happened. Yeah, I also would push back just on the framing. I think we don't do our ideals a service in this country when um, we sort of represent them as, as, as two sides of, 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 a, of a coin, uh, but rather, right, really to talk through what happened in the context of one person uh, making a, a really terrible set of, of racist claims about the other. So what happened is is that there was video that uh, that surfaced of uh, Bobert at a campaign event uh, where she told this story that has has since failed to be corroborated. I see a Capitol Police officer running hurriedly to the elevator. I see fret all over his face. Uh, where she gets into a elevator with Ilhan Omar and a Capitol Police person uh, comes rushing forward and uh, Bobert says, She doesn't have a backpack, we should be fine. Uh, implying that, you know, she'd be a, a real terrorist threat uh, if she was wearing a backpack. And she also uh, called uh, Ilhan a member of the Jihad Squad. And so uh, what you're hearing here is a clear use of a, a set of images and assertions that equate Ilhan because of her Muslim faith with terrorism. Um, and of course, this has a long history uh, in our country, particularly since 9-11, uh, uh, equating Muslims with terrorists. But as, as you say, those are two quite well-known sort of tropes of Islamophobia, use of the word jihad to describe, uh, you know, a visible or believing Muslim, and then the equation or association with terrorism. How did Ilhan Omar respond to these things being said about her? 
Well, she, she immediately asked for a public apology and called this what it was, which is uh, a frank example of Islamophobia and the same kinds of insults uh, and tropes that have been used to marginalize and otherize Muslims in this country for a very long time. And so this this didn't just remain sort of megaphone diplomacy, if you like, with the two of them just speaking to each other through the media. They did in the end, and I think this is what's got people fascinated by this story, these two extremely different people did talk to each other directly. They did. A phone call between Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert and Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar did not do much to diffuse tensions, if at all, between the two. So Boebert called Ilhan Omar and said to the effect that um, she, as a, in her words, a strong Christian woman, would never want to alienate anybody uh, on account of, of their religion. And Ilhan demanded a public apology, and Boebert kept saying that she wouldn't uh, issue a public apology. And So I told Ilhan Omar that she should make a public apology to the American people for her anti-American, anti-Semitic, anti-police rhetoric. Ultimately, Ilhan ended up hanging the phone up on Boebert. And then she issued the following statement. She said, instead of apologizing for his her Islamophobic comments and fabricated lies, Representative Boebert refused to publicly acknowledge her hurtful and dangerous comments. She instead doubled down on her rhetoric, and I decided to end the unproductive call. So let's unpack this a bit, because it's quite a lot going on there. So let's go with this very first formulation, which I find really interesting, her defining herself, Lauren Boebert, saying, as a strong Christian woman. What do you think is going on with, with that form of words and her using it in this context? She's trying to argue that because she identifies as a person of faith, that her comments cannot be construed as alienating other people of faith. And this is a really common assertion by people who will marginalize people on account of a different faith than theirs. They'll say, well, as a person uh, of faith myself, there's nothing I would intend to say uh, that would be uh, alienating to, to other people of faith when, of course, uh, the issue here isn't about being a person of faith. The issue is about being a Muslim person of faith, uh, which, of course, unfortunately, there is a strong history uh, among the conservative right in this country that tends to often be evangelical of particularly and, and specifically marginalizing and making these kinds of assertions about people of the Muslim faith. You have to have a pretty limited knowledge of history, don't you, to think that because one person subscribes to a faith, they are not going to have negative attitudes towards other people of faith. I mean, that is where conflict has been for many, many centuries. That, that's right. And, and, and unfortunately, right, and I'm not trying to argue that all people who are evangelical hold these perspectives, but you've often heard uh, the most pointed and, um, and really the most dangerous assertions uh, coming from uh, the extreme right. And, and, and folks uh, on the extreme right are, are substantially more likely to be evangelical Christians. And so, you know, to your point, right, that the fact that one holds a faith uh, does not then bar them from discriminating against people of other faiths. Unfortunately, uh, history is rife with these kinds of examples. Yeah, it struck me hearing it that it was a signal to her own supporters saying, here I am standing up for a very particular, and again, we've talked about this on this podcast, a kind of muscular Christianist politics. I'm standing up and fighting the good fight against this sort of Muslim other. I felt, hearing the phrase, that she was doing a bit of signalling to her own base there. Uh, in a way, your response is actually a little bit, you know, you're, you're being a tiny bit more generous, I think. Well, I, I think you're you're absolutely right. Um, you know what what she's doing is appealing to a rather um, stereotyped uh, set of ideals among her base, which is 
that we are the normal Americans and that anyone else uh, who comes here uh, or, you know, frankly, who was brought here, this appeal to her base on a white identitarian frame really does sort of appeal to the sense that we are normal and anyone else is is not. So what's your read of why she put the call in in the first place? Do you think it was a good faith effort to build bridges and to make amends? Or do you think this was always intended to be some kind of, what, a stunt? Well, I can't uh, judge what's in someone's mind or heart. But what I will say is that it's a pretty regular uh, occurrence now where uh, you have an individual who has offended and said something racist or or, uh, Islamophobic against somebody. And then uh, reaches out to them. And when, by design, their apology is unacceptable, it doesn't actually address the frank wrong that was done, they come back and then play the victim again to their own base saying that, well, I tried to be the bigger person. I tried to, to, to bury the hatchet here. But, but this person, right, as a function of who they are tried to, you know, in, in, in Lauren, Lauren Borbert's words here, tried to cancel me uh, by, by hanging up on her. And that, you know, in the context of a second video. This new video is from a September Republican fundraiser. Bobert not only tells her elevator story, she also calls Omar and another Muslim member of Congress black-hearted and evil. What this tells us is it's not just a certain casual Islamophobia on Bobert's part. In fact, it is part of her political persona. It's part of her political identity. It's part of her political brand uh, to wield Islamophobia uh, in the process of our politics. And so y- you get a real sense that this isn't just about, you know, one person's Islamophobic animus. This is about trying to, uh, to, to build a political identity um, that is frankly marginalizing of Muslim people uh, and implicitly uh, arguing that Muslim people don't belong here. Now, you mentioned that Ilhan Omar is, is is well known as a member of the so-called squad for women of colour in Congress, in the House. It you know goes without saying, or perhaps shouldn't go without saying, that all four of them have been on the receiving end of serious abuse, threats, online abuse. And um, abuse from the highest level. And, you know, Donald Trump saying that they should go back where they came from uh, rather famously. What extra element do you think it adds to Ilhan Omar that she is a Muslim? She typifies a certain target of antipathy among the white identitarian right. And uh, and so it has made her the kind of target uh, that is unfortunately um, almost always pushed forward as an example of what uh, the right is against in this country. And it has led to, to, to really serious threats on her life and uh, the kind of abuse that uh, day in and day out, you know, you just have to lament the consequences of what Bobert is saying uh, to Ilhan don't end with Ilhan. Um, unfortunately, they started it with Ilhan uh, and Muslim folks in this country uh, who uh, are just trying to go about their lives. They are now uh, being told by their leaders that, uh, that in fact, it is open season on Muslims, that this kind of abuse and, and this kind of Islamophobia is, is tolerable. And are you seeing that, Tate? Give us a sense of what the picture is right now. How big a problem is Islamophobia in today's America in terms of attacks, other figures rising? Just give us a sketch of, of, of how severe a problem this currently is. Well, certainly, you know, in the 20 years since 9-11, you saw the the, the kind of Islamophobia uh, leading to violence rise substantially and even more so in the aftermath of Donald Trump's uh, rise to the presidency 
uh, in his ultimate election. And I'll tell you just anecdotally as a Muslim American, the experience of post 9-11 America and in post-Trump America in particular uh, has been a harrowing one. And a the vast proportion of racist abuse that Muslims are subjected to do- goes um, unreported. Folks feel like if they do report it, then uh, they might be bringing more uh, back onto themselves. And so even the evidence that we have, despite the fact that it is demonstrated a rise in Islamophobia, even that evidence uh, is really quite limited and in, in, in only really uh, captures the, the tip of the iceberg. It's really interesting to me that you mentioned 9-11 because that was in my mind anyway, partly because of the contrast, which is after 9-11, a Republican president, George W. Bush, made a big point of saying... These acts of violence against innocents violate the fundamental tenets of the Islamic faith. And it's important for my fellow Americans to understand that. This is not on all Muslims. This is not on America's Muslims. And he went very visibly, very famously to a mosque, I think within five days of 9-11 to underline that point. You're saying that we are a long way from that now. Well, of course, Donald Trump ran on a complete and total ban of Muslims entering this country. Um, And he tried to make good on that uh, on multiple occasions. Uh, He specifically uh, targeted Ilhan Omar because of uh, her Muslim faith and and, and because of her uh, status as an immigrant. We can't divorce this from the history of our country. Our country fought two wars in predominantly Muslim countries. When you spend $2 trillion to fire up a war machine and uh, all of the imagery that you show of who the quote unquote enemy is looks a particular way, the consequences on society are really quite profound. All Donald Trump did was target um, very explicitly and name who the perceived enemy was to a very particular uh, base of, of you know, white identitarian right wing extremists. And, and then the other thing that Donald Trump did was created a bunch of mini Trumps, right? Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, these are all mini Trumps. And even uh, if you are not an explicit mini Trump yourself, you, you have to you have become a Trump apologist. You made the point that much of the criticism of Ilhan Omar is Islamophobic. I'm, I'm interested to ask you whether you think any of it is ever fair. And I'm thinking particularly of a remark that she made, and she did, um, you know, apologize for when she was discussing uh, APAC, the pro-Israel organization, and said, you know, support for APAC was, her words, all about the Benjamins, a reference to money, with an unhappy history there, given the association of of Jews and money. And she did apologize for that. She was criticized for that. Do you, do you believe there is, you know, it's possible for people to make criticisms of Ilhan Omar that are not uh, Islamophobic or prejudiced against Muslims. You know, the, the point is that you can criticize somebody for what they say and what they do. You can't criticize them for what they are. And the kind of uh, abuse that she is taking right now has nothing to do with, with what she's said or what she's done, which of course uh, is up for criticism, right? She is a, a public servant and she is a politician. And uh, some of the things that she says and does are going to be liable to be criticized. But it's a different thing to criticize her for what she is. In the case of that tweet that uh, that Ilhan Omar made, it was a really clumsy tweet. Uh, I don't think she intended it that way, but she also recognized uh, that she did play in some respect to a trope and she apologized for it. And, you know, that's what we want in our, in our public servants, that they recognize what they did wrong and that they apologize for it. I want to hear your reaction to the sort of worry that I have a little bit observing from some distance away, which is, you know, where this current dynamic ends. We've, we talked again on, on this podcast about the video that Congressman Paul Gosar distributed. He was 
not rebuked by his own party for that and actually reposted the video. You then have this sort of odd dynamic of an almost a kind of arms race among the mini Trumps, your phrase, competing with each other to be ever more outrageous. And some of Lauren Bobert's colleagues have uh, have sort of doubled down on her behalf. Marjorie Taylor Greene, a very similar kind of far-right Republican, went on the TV show of Steve Bannon, Trump's former chief strategist, to say that Bobert did nothing wrong. And actually going further in her attacks on Ilhan Omar, saying she's pro-Hamas, pro-Al-Qaeda, etc. You know, the worry I have is where does this lead? And I, I'm, I'm sort of almost reluctant to actually spell it out. But, you know, it's implied in that video. And the violent threats um, that, you know, Congresswoman Omar played, I think, the audio of an explicit death threat she had received on her voicemail. And perhaps we can hear that. You will not live much longer, bitch. I can almost guarantee you that these people are rising up. I mean, how worried are you by this, that this doesn't just stay at the level of talk? Yeah, I'm really quite profoundly worried. And I think anyone who loves and believes in our democracy in America ought to be profoundly worried. That is a really dangerous strain in our politics. And unfortunately, it is one that we've seen coming since the the earliest days when Donald Trump came down that doomed escalator. It's the, the kind of violence that that brings upon, but it's also the kinds of civics that that creates where you have a frank effort to disenfranchise people through uh, laws intended to suppress the votes of people of color uh, in urban communities across our country. It is an anti-democratic strain of politics. And the question now is, how do we take it on? Uh, because unfortunately, even after Trump, these mini Trumps uh, are continuing to perpetuate and grow it. We always ask, Abdul, our guests on this podcast, a what else question. And I have mentioned that you are an epidemiologist. And so I'm bound to ask you about all of that this week, especially because uh, we are just learning more and more about this new variant of coronavirus, the Omicron variant, which could be uh, even more troubling. So the question is, this week, uh, we've seen a group of Senate conservatives planning to force a shutdown of the federal government unless Democratic leaders agree to block money that would be used to enforce uh, Joe Biden's vaccine mandate on the private sector, making the uh, uh, vaccination uh, compulsory in effect. If enough Republicans manage to rally behind this uh, objection, it could uh, lead even to a shutdown of the government for several days because it would deny that stopping up funding. What do you make of all this? It, it is a really dangerous development. Uh, I'll tell you that the other piece of uh, this strain of identitarian politics that we're seeing build and emerge on the right uh, is an opposition, a rejection to any form of truth that uh, that doesn't comport with the beliefs of their leader. Um, and that includes journalism, that includes science. And so much of this move is about trying to placate an anti-science base that uh, that doesn't believe that the pandemic is real, let alone uh, that the vaccines are safe and effective, and that they're willing to shut down the government over it. This is something all of us ought to be worried about. And so uh, I think that we have to see all of these, uh, these, these issues in context together, and where we make decisions uh, based on reason and thought rather than uh, based on uh, the fears and anger uh, of a small contingent of people who want to tear us apart. My thanks to Dr. Abdul El Sayed for talking to me on the podcast this week. 
Now, as you know, all weeks are good weeks to listen to Guardian podcasts, but this one is a bit of a standout. In UK Politics Weekly, Jessica Elgott has the first interview with a former head of communications for Keir Starmer, Ben Nunn. So that is really worth listening to. And the former deputy leader of the Labour Party, Tom Watson, talks very candidly to Grace Dent on her podcast, Comfort Eating, about his own eating disorder. On Wednesday's episode of our sister podcast, Today in Focus, Nosheen Iqbal looks at the latest fight over abortion rights in the US. And our award-winning Football Weekly podcast recorded a special on misogyny in the game. So you are spoiled for choice. Do look out for those wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please stay safe and thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Hallo, hier ist wieder Clark. Wusstest du, dass 61% der Deutschen bereit wären, Geld für eine Versicherung der Erde auszugeben? Bis das möglich ist, kannst du deine Welt im Kleinen versichern. Die passenden Angebote findet der Clark-Algorithmus aus über 160 Versicherern für dich. Natürlich zugeschnitten auf deine aktuelle Lebenssituation. Und bei Fragen stehen dir die Clark-Versicherungsexperten zur Verfügung. Teste uns. Jetzt anmelden und deine Versicherungen einfach über die kostenlose App managen. Ohne Papierkram. Wenn du dich jetzt mit dem Gutscheincode PODCAST30 alles großgeschrieben registrierst und deine Versicherungen in Clark hochlädst, erhältst du einen Amazon-Gutschein von bis zu 30 Euro. 